As good news starts to come in, Americans ask what it will take to start to reopen. President Trump targets the WHO and the staffing chaos in the administration continues. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Your online activity should not be public. Protect yourself right now at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Before we get to anything else, you may have noticed the market a little bit volatile over the past few weeks. You noticed that a little bit? Well, maybe it would have been a good idea like a few weeks ago to have diversified into precious metals at least a little bit. Well, the same thing remains true today in a world of volatility where you can't know what's happening next. It's not a bad idea to be diversified into at least something that has a solid value to it. Right now, you shouldn't be relying just on the market. Call Birch Gold and convert your traditional IRA or 401k into a precious metals IRA if that is something you are interested in doing. If you've not yet taken the first step of requesting a free information kit on gold, you should know this is not a particularly complicated process. Birch Gold will go to work, make things simple for you. They will answer all of your questions. They will have a conversation with you, and you can determine if precious metals make sense for you. There is no obligation, so you have nothing to lose to take that first step. Birch Gold Group has thousands of satisfied customers, countless five-star reviews, and A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Again, if you had had some precious metals in your portfolio over the last few weeks, you would have been a lot better off. It's one of the reasons why I suggest that everybody diversify at least a little bit into precious metals. Don't wait until the market drops again to protect your hard-earned savings. Text BEN to 474747. See how simple and straightforward the move can be for you. Again, that's BEN, my name, to 474747. And go check out my friends over at Birch Gold. All righty, so... The we have some actual good news this morning. We have some bad news in the sense that there is always a trailing indicator of where we are on this virus, and that is the death count. The death count in New York was very high last night. Uh, the, the death count overall in the United States was very high yesterday, but that is because we are moving quickly toward the peak. So the death count tends to lag the actual number of infections that have been identified by a significant amount of time, anywhere for, from a week to two weeks. Last night, we saw over 1,800 Americans dead over the course of the last day, which is a big number. I mean, it's definitely a big number. Normally in America, about 7,500 Americans die in a given day. So add to that 1,800 Americans, although deaths from other causes is down fairly significantly because everybody is staying in. So nobody's dying in car crashes, for example. Overall, right now, the United States has suffered around 13,000 deaths and virtually all of those have accrued in the last two weeks. We have well over 400,000 cases. The majority of the cases that have been identified, or at least the the vast plurality of the cases that have been identified, have been identified in New York. 142,000 cases identified in New York, over 5,000 deaths in New York, approaching 6,000 deaths in New York. So New York is indeed the epicenter of all this, followed by New Jersey. What's been kind of amazing is to look at the contrast between, say, New York and New Jersey and California, another highly populous state, which to date has still seen under 500 deaths in the state of California. And the lockdown orders that went into place in California went down three, four days earlier than the lockdown orders that went into place in New York, maybe a week earlier on the the very outside in places like San Francisco. With all of that said, the big factor here is that not only did California lock down very quickly, California also is much more spacious. There are people out in suburbia. People are not on top of each other the same way they are in areas with public transportation networks that are used in, in enormous fashion. It's why you are seeing big upticks in Detroit. Basically, population density is a fairly good indicator that you're going to get a fairly large wave because people are infecting each other. Meanwhile, over in the UK, Boris Johnson remains in intensive care for the second straight day. He apparently is not on ventilators. He apparently is on some sort of supplemental oxygen. Johnson is in stable condition. He is breathing without the help of a ventilator, according to a government spokesperson. The 55-year-old has not been diagnosed with pneumonia but is indeed receiving oxygen. So that is the latest on Boris Johnson. Now, I said there was some good news. And in fact, there is some very, very good news, like a lot of good news, actually, today. I mean, as good as the news can be in the middle of a global pandemic. But the news is good. So you remember that IMHE model that I've been talking about all week long? I've been talking about the modeling and how uncertain the modeling is and what that means for how we get out of this. And we're going to get to what all of the new data means for how we get out of this, how we reopen the economy and go back to some form of life in just a few minutes. But the IMHE model has been downgraded again, again. So over the course of the last five days, the IMHE model from University of Washington, which is a curve fitting model, meaning what they do is they look at all the data coming in from different areas, and then they try and draw a curve to fit the curves that they're seeing in other areas. So as more data comes in, then they are they are changing the their curve to fit the data that is coming in. Originally, they were relying on Wuhan data, and they were relying on Italy data. And it turns out that that data was outlying data or not properly reported in the case of China. And so they were really overestimating what the peak would be, it looks like. They were also really over, they were really underestimating how fast the peak would arrive 
because it looked as though it was taking a while for, for things to build to a peak because it did take a while in Italy, but that's because their hospital resource use was completely overwhelmed. So they have now downgraded the model again, the IMH University of Washington model. So remember, they'd suggested anywhere from 100,000 to 250,000 deaths by the beginning of August. Well, now they are suggesting that the total number of deaths in the United States, which they had pegged at like 93,000 as of last Friday, and then they downgraded that to 82,000 on Monday. They are ne- they've now dropped it dramatically again. That has now dropped to 60,415. So it has dropped by fully one third since Friday. And that is because the new data is coming in. Now, again, they, they, ha- they were already gearing for everybody locked down. That was one of the actual provisions of their study. The study was, was done with the assumption that everyone was going to lock down through the end of May. Now, is everybody going to lock down through the end of May? I don't know. I, I think that's pretty highly unlikely considering that we are only at the beginning of April. Like going for another six weeks on this thing seems rather uncertain. But with that said, the question is why the variability in their own model, right? Why did the curve change so much? So either they underestimated the impact of people locking down, meaning that people locking down really spread the transmission rates. And it's a factor of the transmission rates, not the death rates, meaning that there are only a few factors here that could really be impacting the number of deaths total, right? There's the transmission rate, meaning Let's say that the let's say that you have the, you hold the death rate constant. Let's say the death rate is one percent, but the transmission rate is like three times. So you're going to infect three people. So that means tons of people get infected and tons of people die because you've infected a lot of people, even if the death rate is the same as, for example, the flu. So that is one possibility. Another possibility is that the death rates themselves were overestimated, meaning that the transmission rate was the, the transmission rate was not as high as previously thought, but they thought that more people were dying of it than were actually dying of it. And then the third possibility is they thought that if people stayed home, then they would still be going out and meeting other people. But they didn't change that factor. So what that really suggests is that either this thing is not quite as transmissible as they had originally supposed, or the death rate based on actual case numbers is not as high as previously supposed. And these questions are really vital. It is really important to know the answers to these questions, because until we know the answers to these questions, we're not going to know how to roll out a recovery plan. We're not going to know, should we let tons of people out? Because what if a huge percentage of the population has already had this thing? What if 30% of the population has already had this thing, right? As we are seeing in New York City, as the number of tests goes up, so do the number of of positives. We've actually seen something a 45, 46% positive rate for people who are coming in for coronavirus tests in New York. Now, again, that's self-selected, right? It's not randomly selected. Those are people who are coming in with symptoms. But that does suggest pretty wide and, and broad spread of this thing. Okay, so they've also downgraded the number of deaths per day in terms of the peak. So like three days ago, they were suggesting that the peak was going to happen, I believe, April 15th, and they'd suggested over 3,000 deaths, like 3,300 deaths on that day. Instead, they're now projecting that the highest day of death is going to be on April 12th and will be 2,200 deaths, which is a lot lower, like a lot lower. And then it will quickly drop off to the point where we are experiencing double-digit deaths if this model holds, which again, they've been dropping it consistently. So we hope that they continue to drop it. If this model were to be the one that actually holds, if if this were accurate, then we would be dropping into double-digit deaths by May 21st, right? which is very, very good news. Also, when it comes to the resources that are used, same sort of deal. They've dramatically downgraded the number of beds that will be needed, the number of ICU beds that will be needed, the number of ventilators that will be needed. Remember, they had been suggesting, I believe, 29,000 ventilators would be needed during peak resource use, which would be in three days, April 11th, right? Now they are saying they will need 16,500 ventilators, right? Which is a dramatic decrease almost by 50%. And the same thing with the, with the number of total hospital beds. They, had, they dropped that to 140,000. Now it's down to 94,000 ICU beds. Same sort of deal. They had said that they would need, I think it was 50,000, something like that. ICU beds, they've dropped that down to 19,000. So the models are continually being reduced. And that does suggest that there is some data that is entered into these models originally that is not right. Now, does that mean that it was wrong to lock down? No, it doesn't mean it was wrong to lock down, right? Now the question is going to be how we get out of this thing, which is much more important than was it wrong to lock down. I mean, in the, in, the, in the presence of data that suggests the lockdown has been super successful, that doesn't mean the lockdown was unsuccessful. We'll get to more of this in just one second. First, let us talk about the underwear that grace your tuchus at this very moment. Over the next few weeks, you are going to be spending a lot of time lounging around. I know you're going to be spending a lot of time in the house and you need comfortable comfortable wardrobe, loungewear, underwear. These are going to be your very best friends. And this is why you need Tommy John, the revolutionary loungewear and underwear brand that is redefining comfort. They're offering you right now 
20% off your first order. Treat yourself, upgrade to a few pairs of Tommy John underwear in the softest, most breathable fabrics you've ever worn. They have for men and women. My wife loves her Tommy John underwear. They really are fantastic. Tommy John obsesses over every little detail and stitch. They use proprietary fabrics that perform like nothing you've ever worn before. Their underwear comes with a no wedgie guarantee, which definitely would have helped me when I was younger. They've eliminated visible panty lines for women. Their quick dry flaw has been proven to save men over 217 minutes a year. I don't even know how they measure that, but apparently they've got this thing pegged down to the minute. Tommy John is so confident in their underwear. If you don't love your first pair, you can get a full refund with their best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. Hurry on over to tommyjohn.com slash Ben for 20% off your first order. That is tommyjohn.com slash Ben for 20% off again. tommyjohn.com slash Ben, the best underwear you will ever order, ever own. And you're not going to pay a fortune for them because you get 20% off when you use my promo code. That's tommyjohn.com slash Ben. Okay, so meanwhile, we are now seeing another good news that we are we are not actually being overrun in mass terms. So one of the reasons to flatten the curve was to prevent us from being overrun, was to prevent the hospitals from being short on ventilators, rationing of ventilators, short on ICU beds, short on medical resources. And as it turns out, while there have been hiccups in the process, because distribution is never even or easy, right? If the federal government says, we're going to hand you a thousand ventilators, that doesn't mean they're going to go directly to the hospital department that is necessary over the course of the next 24 hours. I mean, as we have seen with virtually every government disaster response, there are just holdups in the in the distribution chains. This sort of stuff is very common, right? It's what you saw in Puerto Rico when FEMA was shipping bottles over there, bottles of water. And then six months later, with everybody not having water on the tarmac, there's just millions of bottles of water. That sort of stuff does happen fairly frequently. With that said, the response of the federal government overall has been quite good. Here was Mike Pence yesterday listing all of the supplies that have been delivered. The New York metro area, including New Jersey, just in the last five days, more than 6 million N95 masks, more than 6 million surgical masks, uh, and 2.8 million uh, gowns were distributed to that region as well. Uh, going next to New Orleans, uh, some uh, 837,000 N95 masks for healthcare workers, 165 surgical masks, uh, other items, including uh, almost 6 million gloves, have been distributed. Just in the last five days, 1.6 million N95 masks have been routed into the healthcare system in Detroit, uh, nearly 700,000 surgical masks, and, and 24 million gloves, just as a portion of what's displayed. Guys, by the way, remember ventilators, 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 ventilators. It turns out that on Monday night, both Cuomo and Bill de Blasio claimed that the need had been met for ventilators in the state. So there's all this talk about ventilators and how we are going to be splitting ventilators and rationing ventilators. That may still happen in particular areas if those areas see sudden spikes, for example, and they've not been distributed. But Gavin Newsom in California has announced that he's been working with state governments all over the place to purchase en masse ventilators. The United States government is supposed to be developing 100,000 ventilators. That's going to be way more than we need, like way, way, way more than we need. That should go in the federal stockpile. That's a good thing, by the way. It's not a bad, just like we have lots of nuclear weapons we never have to use. Better we should have too many ventilators on hand and then we never have to use them than that we have too few ventilators. With that said, all of the panic talk about how we were going to run short on ventilators, the government response was, was fairly decent here. And also, as it turns out, the estimates were way off for how many ventilators were actually necessary. Remember, Trump got ripped up and down when he suggested that when Cuomo said he needed 30,000 to 40,000 ventilators, he thought the numbers would be a lot lower than that. Turns out numbers were kind of a lot lower than that. So Trump may have been, you know, engaging in evidence-free happy talk, but his actual guess was not wrong on that one. Meanwhile, Andrew Cuomo came out yesterday, the governor of New York. He said, we have not lost a single human being because of lack of care. So for all of the talk about you know, shortages, we've responded such that people are not dying because they're not getting the care they need. The question is, are you saving everyone you can save? And there the answer is yes. And I take some solace in that fact. Uh, our health care system is operating when I, I don't believe we lost a single person because we couldn't provide care. People we lost, we couldn't save despite our best efforts. OK, so that is that is good news is that we have not been overrun. Right. Which was the, we, what I said yesterday. God willing, we have flattened the curve such that the health care system is not overrun. Now the question is, what comes next? And we're hearing a constant drumbeat out of the administration now that the numbers were way too high, right? Over the course of two weeks, that the numbers were way too high in terms of what they thought was going to happen. Now, people who think the lockdowns need to be quasi-permanent policy, they're like, well, yeah, this is because of the lockdowns. People who are not pro that policy are like, well, did we go too far? The only way we're going to know that is with additional data. We're going to get to that in just one second. First, 
Let us talk about the fact that you're spending an awful lot of time online right now. Hacking methods are growing super sophisticated. I'm sure everybody is working from home without your IT department to protect you from those online threats. And this is why you need a VPN. I've been using a VPN myself for years. You should be using ExpressVPN because it is the best online protection possible. I've been talking about ExpressVPN on my show for a really long time. You know why you need to protect your computer. But ExpressVPN does it in a really great way. Not only do they protect all of your data so that they are not monetizing your data in some weird back-end way, Also, ExpressVPN is really fast, easy to use. It's not going to slow down your computer. One of the easiest ways to secure your internet data is with ExpressVPN. One click on your computer smartphone, you are now protected. So the question is, why have you not done this yet, right? This is quick. This is easy. It's not going to cost you a fortune. Visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Protect your internet today with the VPN I trust to keep my data safe. That's expressvpn.com slash Ben. Again, that's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Ben. When you use that slash Ben, you get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Go check them out right now. Okay, so as I say, it is a drumbeat out of the administration now. The CDC's Robert Redfield, the head of the CDC, he says the coronavirus death toll is going to be a lot lower than we expected if we continue to socially distance the American public are taking the social distancing recommendations to heart. And I think that's the direct consequence why you're seeing the numbers are going to be much, 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 much lower. Okay, not only that, Dr. Fauci came out. He says by next week, we're going to be looking at the downside of the slope. Here's Dr. Fauci yesterday. As we get further on beyond this week, we should start to see the beginning of a turnaround, which is a good sign. So, you know, it's very sobering to see the increase in deaths And we predicted over the weekend that this would really be a bad week. And it is. It's going to be a bad week for deaths. But driving that and ahead of that is the fact that we're going to start to see the beginning of a turnaround. So we need to keep pushing on the mitigation strategies because there's no doubt that that's having a positive impact on the dynamics of the outbreak. Fauci also suggested one of the original models projected 100,000 to 200,000 deaths. As we are getting more data and seeing the positive effects of mitigation, those numbers are going to be downgraded. Right now, it's going to be a lot less than the original projection, which, again, is really good. It does raise the question of, I thought that your models originally took into account the fact that we were socially distancing. So that means another one of the other factors change, right? Because if your model, right, if there's only X, Y, and Z, if X was the, the factor of social distancing, and if that remained constant, then the model could only have changed with Y or Z, transmission rate or death rate, right? I mean, those, those are the only factors in the model. There are not a lot of other factors in the model since everybody is staying home. Unless, you know, presumably, for some reason, you thought that the staying home was not going to mitigate this thing nearly as much like you assumed that 50% of the population was going to stay home and it turned out to be 100% of the population. But they've not really said that yet. And the UW model doesn't suggest that, the University of Washington model. So exactly what comes next? How do we get out of this? Well, Rahm Emanuel's brother, Ezekiel, Ezekiel Emanuel's brother, I believe. So Ezekiel Emanuel, who is a healthcare policy expert, one of the Obamacare minds. And yesterday, he gave his dark vision. He said there will be no religious services or dinner in restaurants for 12 to 18 months. Here, here he was yesterday basically saying we're going to have to continue to tamp down the economy until we find a vaccine, which could take upwards of a year. Realistically, COVID-19 will be here for the next 18 months or more. We will not be able to return to normalcy until we find a vaccine or effective medications. If we prematurely end that physical distancing and the other measures, keeping it at bay, deaths could skyrocket into the hundreds of thousands, if not a million. We cannot return to normal until there's a vaccine. Conferences, concerts, sporting events, religious services, dinner in a restaurant, none of that will resume until we find a vaccine, a treatment, or a cure. Okay, so it may be true that that is the case, but we're going to have to look at how other countries are handling this and also... We are going to have to get better statistics on how all of this works because there are really three questions that need to be asked. First, what is the true coronavirus fatality rate? That question is really important because it determines whether certain areas ought to be open or closed, whether we ought to pursue in Sweden style a more liberalized society that presumes a very widespread. So, for example, if we have widespread already and it is impossible to tamp it down such that we can actually socially trace and and contact trace, well, then presumably we'd be better off just telling everybody who's most vulnerable, stay home, work from home, and telling everybody else, go out and get it, right? Give each other, <laughs> right? That, that's kind of what Sweden is doing. And right now, it, I've been very honestly perturbed by the media coverage of what's happening in Sweden because Sweden assumed that there would be an uptick in deaths before there was a downtick. I mean, I talked about this yesterday. The second wave is the question nobody's asking right now. Okay, so we flatten the curve. We get it underneath the, the medical necessities. 
right? We're, we're, presumably, if there's a second wave, we're not going to max out our supply chains. Great. Now what? What happens when there's a second wave? So if all you've done by flattening the curve is avoided some of the hospital overruns, which is great, but then there's a second wave and everybody's going to get it anyway. You know, if the assumption is everybody's going to get it anyway, then you have to ask, okay, so what, how long are we holding this down here? When people look at Sweden and they say, well, they have a bigger first wave. The question is, okay, but the models don't end in August. I can cite that UW model until the cows come home, that IMHE model. That model ends August, August 4th. This thing ain't going to end August 4th. We've been told it's seasonal, which means it's coming back in the fall. So what exactly are we going to do when it comes back in the fall? Lockdown again for another, what, entire winter? Lockdown until the vaccine is found in presumably January or February at the very earliest and then produced in March? Going to lock down all the way from September to March? Who thinks that's going to be a thing? We've already lost 30 million jobs. Who thinks, that, who thinks that's going to be a thing? Okay, so we need to find out what the true coronavirus fatality rate is. Now, we've seen the case fatality rates, but those are not super accurate. Right? The, the reason that they are not super accurate is because the case fatality rates presume that we know how many people have been infected, which is not correct. We don't know how many people have been infected. We don't actually even know how many people are dead. Right? This is one of the problems. So right now, there is an argument going on as to whether the numerator in the fatality rate or the denominator or both are flawed. We know for sure that the denominator is flawed. We know for sure there are lots more people who have coronavirus than have been tested for coronavirus and confirmed to have coronavirus. Right? We, we know that for a fact. And as we'll discuss in a second, People are now developing tests, as they should be doing, in order, to, in order to get to the point where we know the answer to that question. But as to that first question, it's now become a hot topic on Twitter, whether we're overcounting COVID deaths. The theory that we are overcounting COVID deaths is that if you die having COVID, that doesn't necessarily mean that you died from COVID. So if you're old and you're 85 and, and you get the flu, but you died from heart, heart failure or something, does that mean that you died of the flu or with the flu? Now, is it true that we may be over broadly characterizing, characterizing COVID deaths by some? I mean, it's possible. I mean, Dr. Burks did say yesterday that anyone who died with COVID is measured as a COVID victim. As we'll see in a second, it's also, I think, more significantly possible that we are undercounting COVID deaths at this point. But here is Dr. Burks uh, talking about how we are categorizing COVID deaths. There are other countries that if you had a pre-existing condition... And let's say the virus caused you to go to the ICU and then have a heart or kidney problem. Some countries are recording that as a heart issue or a kidney issue and not a COVID-19 death. Um, right now, we're still recording it. And we'll, I mean, the great thing about having forms that come in and a form that has the ability to mark it as COVID-19 infection, the intent is right now that those, if someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. Okay, so people have been citing this to suggest that our count is too high because some countries are not categorizing these things that way. However, as we'll see in a second, there's also some pretty good evidence that the count actually may be significantly low. We'll get to that in just one second. First, let us talk about how long it takes to see a doctor in normal circumstances. Forget about like, the circumstances now where you really can't see a doctor in, in a lot of cases. Well, what if you are suffering from a lifestyle thing that really is a problem for you, but is not COVID-19? What, what, if, what if you are suffering from erectile dysfunction, you need to get that solved, or you've got hair loss or cold sores and you want treatment ASAP? Well, this is why our friends over at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. You just grab your phone or computer, you complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. If the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or you want to adjust that treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments. You can cancel anytime. So if you've been struggling with ED, hair loss, cold sores, other issues, go to GetRoman.com slash Ben for that free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Ben for that free online visit and free two-day shipping. No reason for you to suffer with a medical problem while you're sitting at home for a month. Instead, why don't you just go get that telehealth appointment with GetRoman and then get the medication you need. GetRoman.com slash Ben, get that free online visit and free two-day shipping as well. Okay, so the counter evidence to the idea that we are undercounting deaths comes courtesy of Gothamist. They suggest that there are a lot of people dying at home. 
Now, the city is reversing. The city of New York is reversing its position and will probably start counting COVID deaths at home in addition to confirmed ones, which will increase the count. Originally, Gothamist had suggested that if you die at home and they say it was probably COVID, that was not being included in the city counts. Now they are changing that. In a statement, Stephanie Buell, spokeswoman for the New York City Health Department, said the city would no longer report only cases that were confirmed by lab tests. She said the Office of Chief Medical Commissioner and NYC Health Department are working together to include in their report deaths that may be linked to COVID, but not lab confirmed that occur at home. That The new protocol is likely to add thousands of people to the toll. That announcement came after New York saw the largest single day of death so far from COVID. 727 people died in a 24-hour period, but that didn't include many of the cases in which first responders encountered someone who had already died at home or non-hospital settings. Apparently, that happened 280 times on Monday, according to data from the fire department, which means that the total number of deaths would presumably be well over or about about or well over a thousand deaths in New York City. So apparently over the last two weeks, New York Fire Department officials said that over 2,000 New York City residents died in their homes, 2,192, compared to 453 during the same time period last year. On Tuesday evening, the city reported that 3,544 people have died of coronavirus. So if you're actually to include the increase in count, then you'd be looking at an additional 1,600, over 5,000 people dead in New York City alone. So as I say, the, the evidence seems better that we are undercounting COVID deaths right now than overcounting those COVID deaths. But bottom line is we don't actually know the numerator in the fatality rate right now, which brings us to the denominator. Okay, the denominator is the really big one because the numerator may change, but it's not going to change by orders of magnitude. It's not going to be as though there were 13,000 deaths in the United States. Now there are 130,000 deaths because we counted wrong. Well, you may end up with 13,000 deaths in the United States and maybe there are 15,000 deaths in the United States. It's the denominator that matters. And the reason the denominator matters is because number one, it gives you a better indicator of exactly what your chances are of dying if you actually obtain this thing, which makes a big difference as to sort of risk assessment. Like if you tell me right now that if I walk outside, there's a 1.4% shot that I'm gonna be hit by a car and die, I'll probably stay inside. If you tell me that there is a one in 10,000 shot that if I get hit by a car, I'm gonna, that, that I'm gonna walk outside, get hit by a car and die, I'll probably walk out the front door. Right, so it, it really depends on, on the denominator here. We don't know what the denominator is right now. And this is where some people are working hard to put together numbers on the denominator. So there are several different efforts that are being put forward along these lines. According to Science Magazine, there is an attempt by the World Health Organization called Solidarity 2 to put together zero surveys, studies that look for antibodies to COVID-2 in the population, the United States is also launching unprecedented efforts. One zero survey is already underway in six metropolitan areas, including New York City, the hardest hit city in the United States. A second, even larger one, is on its heels. Together, they should give a strong nationwide effort to track closely how many Americans have become infected as the pandemic unfolds. Zero surveys may also help efforts to develop vaccines and separately attempts to devise therapies to stop the virus from causing harm. Science has talked to Michael Bush, a transfusion specialist based at UCSF. And uh, he suggests that this is actually pretty important because once we have serologic testing, then we are going to have to, then we'll know the numbers better. Yeah, so, so this is a very good thing. Meanwhile, we are, we are learning that, that there are certain people who are really attempting to promote, promote zero surveys and new information about how we get these antibody tests. So Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, he says, we've actually developed an antibody test, and we are starting to roll that out. This is a very good thing. Uh, New York State developed, a Department of Health developed an antibody testing regimen that Department of Health has approved for uh, use in New York State. This tests uh, the blood to determine whether or not you have the antibodies, which means you had the virus and resolved the virus. That's why you would have the antibodies for the virus. That would mean that you're no longer contagious uh, and you can't catch the virus because you have the antibodies in your system, which means you can get to work, you can go back to school, you can do whatever you want. Okay, so the, the question is, what are we going to do with the antibody test? There have been a couple of questions about what exactly the antibody tests are for. One of those questions is, are we going to basically create a certificate that says you can go back to work at this point? If so, is that sort of a discriminatory model is, is one of the questions. And is that really practical? And we don't even know at this point whether the immunity lasts for very long. So it's possible that the immunity lasts for six months and then you get it again in September, right? People get the flu every year sometimes because the strains are constantly changing. 
with that said, the antibody tests are useful for a broader reason, and that is we must know exactly how many people in the population have had this thing so that we can tell what the best policy will be. So David Neeleman is the founder of JetBlue and Azul Airways, and he has a piece over at Daily Wire that's pretty important. He writes, thanks to the work of three Stanford University professors and recently FDA-approved antibody tests, we will soon finally know the real size of the denominator of all of those infected by COVID-19, and that could be the game changer we need. The denominator is the total number of people who have been exposed to the virus, many of whom never knew they even had it. The numerator, tragically, is the total number of people who have died from the disease. Divide the numerator into the denominator, we get the death or case fatality rate. As the founder of several airlines in four countries, my company and our industry have been particularly hard hit by the spread of COVID-19. Since the outbreak, I've spent all my days and a lot of my nights trying to find a solution to save as many as possible of the 40,000 jobs for which I am responsible and do what I can to help avoid an economic catastrophe in the making. My search for a solution, writes, writes David Neeleman, my search for a solution has led me to three amazing and dedicated professors and scientists from Stanford University School of Medicine with impeccable credentials. I've come to know them personally, Drs. John Iannatis, Iannatis, Jay Bhattacharya, and Aaron Ben-David, using their epidemiology models and other evidence from China, Italy, Iceland, and the U.S., have questioned from the beginning the true number of those who have been infected by COVID-19. I've talked to Jay Bhattacharya before on the radio show. Everyone agrees that the number of confirmed cases reported is not a correct value for the total number of infected, but by how much? Recent research says that up to 50% of those infected are asymptomatic, and of the remaining 50%, 80% have mild symptoms and are unlikely to have been tested. This creates a confirmation bias because we're only testing for people with the, more, with the most severe symptoms. Inaitis, Bhattacharya, and Ben David believe that the actual number of cases is very likely off by an order of the magnitude of 10, or maybe even times many more. So why is this important? Well, as of today, the U.S. is approaching 400,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and more than 10,000 deaths. What if the Stanford doctors are right? And the actual numbers of those infected is actually 3 million or 10 million. It would be a game changer in our fight against the virus. If it could be proven that 20 or 30 percent of New Yorkers were actually infected instead of less than 1 percent, it would tell us that the peak is closer than we think. And most important, the case fatality rate would be a tiny fraction of the percentage based on deaths as a fraction of confirmed cases. Most important, this information would provide governors, mayors and public health officials valuable new data in determining the number of ICU beds that might be required. As of yesterday, New York had 4,000 patients in ICU beds. Governor Cuomo rightly believes that he could need 30,000 ICU beds at the peak of the epidemic with less than 1% of the population with confirmed cases. But if the actual number of people infected is much higher, then you'd need far fewer ICU beds. But now the FDA has approved this quick test. And while caution should be taken in relying on these tests, they're more than sufficient for determining the correct denominator from a population sample. So Bhattacharya and Ben David have started a study in Santa Clara County in California using antibody tests. They've assembled a team that collected 2,500 blood samples over two days. Once they have the results, they're going to compare those who test positive for the antibodies with the number of confirmed cases and give them scientific information that could predict better how many people actually have this. Also, unspoken is the reality, which is that if tons and tons of people have this, then the idea of of widespread testing and contact tracing is probably not the best solution, especially because, again, everybody is asymptomatic. So unless you're willing to put down tens of millions of tests every week and then quarantine people and socially track them, then perhaps the best case scenario is the is the sort of Sweden scenario where we take everybody who's most vulnerable and we tell them stay home and everybody else goes back out to work. Right? That could very well be what we are talking about right here again, because nobody knows what that second wave looks like in the fall. Right? That is the the second question to be asked, right? One is case fatality, right? One is the second wave and what exactly that looks like. And then finally, what exactly can we do here? Because once we've established the case fatality rate, we still have to figure out what does the second wave look like and can it even be prevented? And Dr. Fauci says we're going to be in good shape to open the schools in the fall, which is kind of an interesting take from, from Dr. Fauci. Here he was explaining that schools might be reopened. I fully expect, though I'm humble enough to know that I can't accurately predict that by the time we get to the fall, that we will have this under control enough that it certainly will not be the way it is now where people are shutting schools. My optimistic side tells me that we'll be able to renew to a certain extent, but it's going to be different. So that is, um, you know, that, that is good news, but it does raise the question. OK, so let's say all these kids go to school and then they come home and grandpa and grandma are there like, are they all going to get infected? And Fauci didn't answer that question. So presumably what we're going to, I think in the end, we're going to end up with a quick and dirty policy, right? There's a lot of talk about widespread testing and national coronavirus surveillance systems. Well, if we already have community spread, and if it turns out that as people suspect, far more people are infected than we currently think, well, then what you're going to end up with is there's nothing we can do about community infection. It's already out there. The case fatality rate is low. We have tremendous amounts of medical resources that have now been made available. The thing died off for the summer. Prepare for the second wave. 
and people who are most vulnerable need to stay home. I think that's probably where we end up in terms of practical policy. And in terms of the economy, that probably is not the, the worst thing. Right? Again, this is why we need more data. Data, 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 data. Right? It, it sounds a lot better than, I mean, there should be real unease over the fact that there are so many people who are looking out to create a national coronavirus surveillance system. Like, I don't know what, know what that's going to look like. I mean, if you were worried about the invasion of privacy that was attendant on 9-11, then I think that we should be a little bit worried about the invasion of privacy that is attendant on we're going to surveil you everywhere you go if you test positive for coronavirus or if you have a fever, right? Because again, these tests, the one, like the dirty little secret here is that the coronavirus tests are not supremely accurate. Like 20% of people who are testing for this thing negative are actually positive for coronavirus. They're not supremely accurate at this point. Okay, so I was going to get to more on coronavirus and perhaps we still will, but I would be remiss if I did not point out that in breaking news, Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the race. So that is a thing that has now happened. Brilliant, brilliant that, that Bernie Sanders waited until after that Wisconsin primary, like the day after the Wisconsin primary, where it was obvious who's going to get shellacked anyway, to drop out. So lots of people waited in line thanks to dramatic confusion over what should be done during a primary, during the COVID-19 era. And then Bernie got out. So just adding insult to injury, he waits until after everybody stands in line to vote for him in Wisconsin, and then he gets out of the race. He, he's going to give some sort of statement, but putting for everybody, I think, is the short statement. Everybody gets pudding. Goodbye, Bernie. We will see you later. I mean, good, good. I mean, Cuba hardest hit, the Castro's hardest hit, Venezuela hardest hit. How, how terrible, how terrible that Bernie, that Bernie is out. I really don't have much more than that. Like, I'm, I'm, it, was, it was an obvious thing. Like, the only reason he was staying in, presumably, was to get to 25% of the delegate base, and then he could use that authority to kind of throw his weight around at the convention. He could still try to do that. He could still walk into the convention and say that I'm not going to throw my Bernie Sanders supporters behind you, Joe Biden, unless you do X, Y, and Z. So I don't think that he needed the formal delegate count in order to do that. With that said, he doesn't have a lot of weight now, and Joe Biden would be a fool to start catering to the Bernie Sanders side of the party. He's got to count on the fact that people don't like Trump to unify the party, not on catering to the Bernie Sandersites. Because right now, Biden's entire campaign rests on the feeling that he is not volatile, that he is not radical, that he is non-threatening. Right? That's the stuff where people are, are worried about Bernie Sanders. So if Biden starts catering to that, he actually undercuts his own message. Okay, we'll get to more of this in just one second. First, we are proud to associate with businesses that focus on the needs of our audience like Bull and Branch. They are fantastic partners measured by the quality of their products and the way they pursue your satisfaction. Bull and Branch epitomizes an American business success story. They don't just make sheets and bedding, pillows, towels, all the kinds of comfortable things that you need in your home. With your help, they put thousands of people to work around the world from their pillows made in Cincinnati, Ohio, to their mattresses made in Florida, Texas, and Arizona since they started six years ago. My Bull and Branch sheets, great example of something small I treat myself to that really makes a huge difference. In fact, the Bull and Branch sheets are so good, I literally cannot sleep on other sheets now. I mean, it's ruined other sheets for me. They are so good. In times like these, when we're spending a lot of time at home, starting and ending your day on the Bull and Branch sheets and pillows is a great reminder that life can still be good and that it's going to be even better just a few weeks from now. Thanks to being available online, bullandbranch.com is indeed open for business. They're still shipping their sheets, pillows, and more fast and free anywhere in the United States. If you've never tried their stuff, it's going to blow you away. Like I, when I first heard of Bull and Branch, it's like, really, can a sheet make that big a difference? Yes, yes, it can. It turns out that these things, unbelievably comfortable, will increase your sleep quality tremendously. Bull and Branch is still offering their 30-day guarantee. If you don't love them, you can return for a full refund. That's how good they are. Remember, you only find Bull and Branch sheets online. It's spelled B-O-L-L and branch.com. If now's the time to make such a purchase, use code Ben Shapiro. Get 50 bucks off your first set of sheets, which is a great deal. Shipping is fast and free. Restrictions may apply. See bullandbranch.com for details. They are a great advertiser and it's a great product. B-O-L-L and branch.com. Check them out right now and use code Ben Shapiro to get 50 bucks off. Okay, we'll get to more in the breaking news side of the business in a second. First, if you have not yet had a chance to see some of our new content called All Access Live, you should head over to dailywire.com and check it out. Jeremy Boring and I kicked it off a few weeks ago, all the other hosted live streams over at Daily Wire. We've been continuing all this week at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Yesterday, I did the All Access Live, and I actually wore a T-shirt. I know. I know. It's an actual thing. I wore a T-shirt. The show is intended for our All Access members. During this national emergency and the time of isolation, we've opened it up to everybody, and we've accelerated the launch. So please let us know what you think of it. If you're around at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific tonight, join us on the All Access Live show over at dailywire.com. We are the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation.
So as I say, the breaking news that Bernie Sanders has indeed dropped out of the presidential race, according to NBC News. The Vermont Independent Senator's 2020 bid started off strong. He narrowly missed first place in Iowa before picking up wins in New Hampshire and Nevada. All the while, his campaign continued to rake in millions in small dollar donations and pack rallies full of supporters as he ascended to national frontrunner status amid a crowded Democratic field. In 2020, a number of candidates backed policies similar to his own. But in the end, he ended up falling when the rest of the party basically united against him because he was just too radical. His campaign officially stalled in South Carolina, fueled by a critical endorsement from Representative James Clyburn. Biden won the Palmetto State decisively, and then the moderate wing of the party consolidated around him. Warren dropped out of the race after Super Tuesday. She declined to endorse any candidate. A week later, on March 10th, Biden dominated in five of the six states that voted, including Michigan, one of Sanders' biggest 2016 victories to grow his delegate lead over the Vermont senator. And then he lost brutally in Florida, Illinois, and Arizona on March 17th. A day after the contest, with the next voting nights weeks away, Sanders' campaign manager wrote the candidate was going to be having conversations about moving forward. Now he has decided not to move forward. Presumably, he's going to blame the lack of moving forward on COVID. He's going to say, if it weren't for COVID, I would have still been able to hold my rallies, and I would have been able to get you all out to vote. And our socialist never has a socialist agenda been more popular or more necessary. And people are going to be like, yeah, Bernie, go away which is how people have felt for several weeks at this point. So we bid a non-fond farewell to Bernie Sanders. We don't have the USSR anthem on hand. If we did, we'd be playing it in salute to the geriatric communist. Okay, meanwhile, as I say, back to the actual stuff that matters. When it comes to how we get out of this thing, some suggestions have been, I early on suggested that we needed to move from China to South Korea, right? That, that meant like contact tracing and heavy testing. That all depends on the denominator. If it turns out that not a lot of people have had COVID yet, that's going to be what we have to do, right? We locked it down to the point where basically the cases are close to zero. And then we can start widespread testing. If somebody gets it, we lock them down, we contact trace them. If, however, the denominator is really large, if it turns out that tons of people have this and tons of people who are asymptomatic have this, then contact tracing is not going to be useful anymore because just there are too many people out there to trace all of them. So we have to, that's why the data are, are, I keep focusing on the data because the data really are the key here. The data are what matter. And meanwhile, White House Senior Advisor Jared Kushner has created a task force reaching out to a range of health technology companies about creating a national coronavirus surveillance system to give the government a near real-time view of where patients are seeking treatment and for what, whether hospitals can accommodate them, according to four people with knowledge of the discussions. Now, that's a good thing. I mean, you want to know which hospitals are being overrun and need supplies. But the question is whether the federal government is basically going to start monitoring every citizen in the country for COVID. Health privacy laws grant broad exceptions for national security purposes, but the prospect of compiling a national database of potentially sensitive health information has prompted concerns about civil liberties, which presumably it should. I mean, these these should be open debates. Jessica Rich, former director of the Federal Trade Commission's Consumer Protection Bureau, says, this is a genuine crisis. We have to work through it and do our best to protect people's health. Doing that doesn't mean we have to destroy privacy. Okay, so bottom line here is that everyone is struggling to figure out exactly how reopening happens. This is true abroad, too. Denmark is trying to figure out how they reopen. Italy is trying to figure out how they reopen. China has been reopening, but only sort of. And meanwhile, you know, all of their propaganda is being echoed by the media. There's still presumably death in China from all of this. I will say points to the troll crew over in China. The People's Republic of China released a video last night about enjoying food in Wuhan. Not kidding you. It's like, well, the ball's on those people. I mean, it, it was like, come enjoy our food in Wuhan. I think it was people enjoying the food in Wuhan a little too much that, that led to, you know, the worst crisis in the history of humanity in some ways. In any case, in Wuhan, it's now becoming clear that the battle is far from over, according to the Wall Street Journal. The city has announced only three confirmed cases since March 18th, which is a lie. Authorities have ended the 77-day lockdown on the city, allowing inbound and outbound travel for healthy people after easing some residential restrictions to revive the crippled local economy. But now they've been tightening restrictions on some housing complexes. They've said others will remain in place after confirming dozens of new asymptomatic cases. And that's the big problem is the asymptomatic cases. Unless you're going to have tons and tons and tons of people testing every single day, asymptomatic cases are going to arrive and presumably everybody is going to infect each other again. So that is why, once again, the, it, apparently, the, the study that's being done, the, the serology tests that are being done, the antibody tests that are being done, like Santa Clara County and all of this, those will be available on Friday. I am fascinated to learn what the actual numbers are in the denominator, because the fact is we cannot continue this way as an economy. We cannot continue this way in terms of lifestyle. The American people are not going to sit home for the next year. It's not going to happen. Now, maybe they go to restaurants and they socially distance. Maybe we don't go to ball games. But if you think that people are going to be locked in their home with their children for a year not going to school... Good luck, Charlie. That is not happening. Meanwhile, we are already seeing the small business aid program stretched 
to its limits because the amount of money that is pouring through the fire hose, the, the nozzle on the fire hose just is not wide enough. And Congress is weighing adding more than $250 billion more to small business aid to keep those businesses alive. Meanwhile, a third of U.S. apartment renters didn't bother to pay their April rent. There's a patchwork of federal and local laws preventing eviction right now. Those laws are getting extraordinary in places like California. Almost all California foreclosures and evictions have now been put on hold for the foreseeable future. The state's Judicial Council on Monday issued emergency orders that stop lenders' efforts to foreclose on mortgages and landlords' ability to evict tenants, except in cases where public health or safety are involved. Also, the governor has issued edicts, which include stiff limitations on lender foreclosures and tenant evictions. And now they are putting, I mean, it is putting property owners and banks at financial risk because not only are they suggesting that they are going to push off the evictions, not only that, they are also suggesting that they're going to allow people not to be evicted for a full 90 days beyond the term of the national emergency. So once the national emergency is over, you still get to live in your home rent-free for three months, which is a great way to destroy all development in the state of California and destroy the real estate market in the state of California. Daniel Yukelson is an apartment association's executive director. He said, many see these eviction moratoriums as carte blanche for not paying rent for any reason. Well, nobody wants to see anyone that is truly impacted by the virus put out in the streets. The entire burden for housing people in our communities cannot merely be forced upon the backs of private citizens, which of course is true. And it's going to lead to presumably some sort of government bailout on that end as well. The council's rules apply for 90 days after the state of emergency is lifted. The new rules mean borrowers and tenants do not have to respond to legal demands for payments during that period. And the right to fight foreclosure and evictions are extended past the council's freeze period, which means it could be six months. People could be living in their apartments for six months with no rent because of the attempts that are being made by the California government. This thing has to end and it has to end forthwith as soon as the data make it possible for us to end it. And we should be looking to how we end this thing in the broadest possible way as soon as the data allow. And I keep saying as soon as the data allow, because again, I'm not somebody saying go rush out into the street, go back to work, everybody enjoy your life. I don't think that's what the data show right now. But let's see what the data show in terms of what is realistic. Because what I'm hearing from a lot of people doesn't sound very realistic to me. Hundreds of millions of tests being trotted out and people taking them voluntarily on a daily basis. You know, you being tested for coronavirus every time you enter a restaurant. What if I decided to go to two restaurants in one day? Like, what, what if, as we say, a huge number of Americans have already had this thing and many are immune? Or what if a huge number of Americans have it and are asymptomatic and are carrying it and there's no way to test them because they don't even show up on tests because the tests aren't sensitive enough? Right. The, the Wall Street Journal is pointing out you know, just how, how crazy this is. Right? A sharp reduction in new infections is a, fir- is a critical first step, they say. But health experts say other steps will be needed to prevent another devastating outbreak that shuts the economy down all over again. That includes building testing and surveillance systems and a readiness to reintroduce social distancing and other mitigations on smaller scale if necessary to give businesses and individuals confidence they can return to work without risking infection. Dr. Fauci says it's not like a light switch on and off. It's a gradual pulling back on certain restrictions to try and get society a bit back to normal. But none of these things are available. Like, are we really going to have these tests ready in September? I mean, he says we're going to be back to school. Again, once things, once kids go back to school, this whole thing is over. Because kids are going to infect each other. They're going to be asymptomatic carriers. They're going to go see grandma and grandpa. That's what's going to happen. Okay, I have kids, three of them under the age of, of seven. I have six, a three, and a newborn. And grandparents are over a lot. Right now, that's okay. What happens when they go back to school? Right, that is the big question. And I've yet to see anybody lay out a plan. And that's why I keep saying it. Data, 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 and then a plan. If we hit these numbers, we do X. If we hit these numbers, we do Y, right? How about that? How about some, like, I thought this is what the government is supposed to be good at, but apparently not. Okay, it's time to get to some things that I like and some things that I hate. So things that I like and I hate. Let's talk about President Trump here. So President Trump said some good things yesterday and he said some bad things yesterday. I mean, this is like epic level, good Trump, bad Trump. And sometimes he says stuff and you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty fantastic. Good for you. And sometimes he says stuff and you're like, why are you doing this? Why, 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 why? Why is it that every other major Western leader has experienced a 15-point boost in the polls and President Trump experienced like a five-point boost in the polls and now it's dissipated? Well, part of that would have to do with the fact that President Trump has an unfortunate tendency to take his foot and shove it all the way down his throat. Sometimes he says things that are wonderful, right? When he objects to nationalization of industry because he has a gut-level love for America and American business. And sometimes he says things that are super dumbassical. And it's, it's very difficult for the American public to feel solid and stable when he does this sort of stuff, right? It's all fun and games when you're on Twitter, but in the middle of a global pandemic, it seems like, like I had a theory for years about Trump that basically just ignore what he says and follow what he does and you're a happy camper. 
it becomes a lot harder when people are feeling this disquieted and when national leadership matters, right? I mean, this is why they got the Queen of England out there speaking for only the fourth time in the last 190 years. Okay, so anyway, President Trump said some good stuff yesterday. He said some bad stuff yesterday. Good stuff that he said. So first, he said he'd love to reopen the country with a big bang. Now, first of all, I think this is good when he says this kind of stuff. The reason I think it's good is because if we see that politicians actually want to keep things closed and just spend enormous amounts of money, we start to think to ourselves, maybe I shouldn't stay home. Maybe this is all a scam. The fact that Trump does not obviously want to keep people locked up is one of the key reasons that people are staying locked up right now. Because people are like, okay, well, at least I know that guy doesn't actually want to just chain me in my house and then toss me 1200 bucks a month. So here's President Trump yesterday saying he'd love to reopen the country with a big bang. Well, I'd love to open with a big bang, one beautiful country and just open. But uh, it's very possible. So we're looking at two concepts. We're looking at the concept where you open up sections, and we're also looking at the concept where you open up everything. I, I think New York is getting ready, if not already, but uh, getting ready to peak. And once it peaks, it'll start coming down, and then it's going to come down fast. So that, that is, you know, President Trump at his best, I think, providing hope to the American people. And that's a good thing. He always said that he was a cheerleader for the American people. And I think that's true. I think that's good. Other good things that President Trump said yesterday. So he said that he is looking at withholding money to the WHO. Well, un, un, indeed, unless conditions change at the WHO, we should be looking at withholding money. They've become a Chinese cat's paw. World Health Organization, because they really are, uh, they called it wrong. They call it wrong. They really, they missed the call. They could have called it months earlier. They would have known. And uh, they should have known. And they probably did know. So we'll be looking into that very carefully. And we're going to put a hold on money spent to the WHO. We're going to put a very powerful hold on it. And we're going to see. So that is, in fact, a, a again, he, I, I think it's not a bad thing. WHO has been a giant failure. So according to the according to National Review, they have an editorial over there. They say that the WHO started off in really doing really great things like eradicating smallpox and, and moving toward the eradication of leprosy and river blindness. But they've really disgraced themselves. On December 30th, Chinese doctor Lei Wenliang warned colleagues about the outbreak of an illness resembling severe acute respiratory syndrome. Public health officials rely on the acuity of doctors, likely, but Chinese authorities didn't reward him. They summoned him to the Public Security Bureau in Wuhan on accusations he'd made false statements and disrupting the public order. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, then followed up with numerous other arrests and publicly warned it would punish anyone spreading rumors on social media. By mid-January, Chinese doctors knew COVID-19 was spreading between humans. On January 14th, the WHO stated that there was no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of coronavirus. Two weeks later, the WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who's the only non-medical doctor ever to lead WHO, flew to Beijing for a meeting with Xi Jinping, who so impressed Tedros, he lauded Chinese authorities for setting a new standard for outbreak control and praised their openness for sharing information. Lee might have disagreed with the sentiment, but it was too late. He had already died after contracting COVID-19. When the WHO Emergency Committee discussed whether to declare COVID a public health emergency January 23rd, international observers had definitively discredited Chinese health data, but Tedros continued relying on those data in arguing against declaring an emergency. Finally, he declared an emergency on January 30th, and he continued as late as February 20th to argue that Chinese actions were slowing the spread of coronavirus to the rest of the world. National Review correctly says the WHO has lent its imprimatur to Chinese disinformation and blessed China's slow response to its domestic outbreak, which likely caused a 20-fold increase in cases, according to a University of Southampton study. So good for Trump for, for putting the, the screws to the WHO. Uh, it definitely deserves it. And President Trump also was right to point out in his press conference yesterday that Joe Biden has changed his position on the travel ban. The media basically just glossed right over that, that Joe Biden had completely flipped on the travel ban from China. One thing with Joe Biden that I respect on Friday, he issued a statement that he thought I was right on closing the border to China. So uh, I respect the fact that he was able to do that. You know, he took the opposite view and then he was able to do that. So I thought that was actually I thought that was very nice. Okay, so all of that is all of that is fine. And and the subtweet of of Biden there, the the kind of the subtle knife between the all of that is fine. Then there is the bad Trump. And again, this has been pretty epic. Good Trump, bad Trump. So yesterday during his press conference. Trump talked about how well he gets along with Andrew Cuomo, who he has been in sort of a tete-a-tete match with. And then he talked about also some government governors are bad and they're acting like political animals. They're, they're really bad. Again, like this, none of this is, is useful. None of this is useful. Like steady leadership would be very good at a time like this. And, and in terms of action, the leadership has been fairly steady. I mean, as steady as it can be in the midst of an unprecedented global pandemic. But when the president says this kind of stuff, it's just not useful. 
I think we've gotten along very well with Andrew. And uh, most of the governors, I mean, a couple I could tell you were wouldn't matter what you did. You could give them 10 times more than they asked. If the if the newspapers called and wanted a quote, they'd give you a bad quote uh, because that's the way they are. You know, they're political animals. And it's uh, you know, this is beyond politics, what we've been going through here. Like the, the constant feeling of war, war, war from Trump is actually not useful. Like he'd have a, a leg to stand on when he says we need to unite in the face of this. If, if again, he were a more uniting figure. Meanwhile, there's a continued chaos inside the administration. The top leader of the Navy had to step down uh, after the after he went aboard a ship and proceeded to rail against a Navy captain who had been fired for sending out a, a missive talking about how the aircraft carrier needed basically to be docked. According to Politico, an aircraft carrier sidelined by a coronavirus outbreak, a promising captain fired for requesting help as infections spread among his 5,000 sailors, a service leaderless once more after the acting Navy secretary resigned Tuesday following an uproar over a profanity-laced address to the ship's crew. The Navy has weathered its share of crises and in the past few months saw the previous Navy secretary forced out over his handling of a war crimes case and the man selected to be its top admiral instead retired due to an improper professional relationship with a former staffer accused of making unwanted sexual advances to several women. But the resignation of Secretary Thomas Modley leaves the service lurching in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it's just, it was bad stuff. Basically, there, there was this guy, Brett Crozier, we talked about this, the, the captain who had blasted out an email to Navy personnel who were not in the chain of command asking for aid and suggesting that the carrier needed to be docked. And the head of the Navy then proceeded to visit the ship and he called Crozier's actions naive and stupid and ripped into the guy over the loudspeakers on the ship. And then he was forced to resign. So just, again, that, that is not a good look. Also not a good look. The president has now removed the independent watchdog for coronavirus funds. Now, I am a member of, of the crowd that believes in the unitary executive branch. I don't believe that there should be, quote unquote, independent inspectors inside the executive branch. This is what the legislature is for. If the legislature wants to set up its own legislative council to oversee spending, then it can absolutely do that in legislation. It can absolutely haul in the Trump administration with all of their reports and go through it. That's why you have an oversight committee, for example, to oversee things, right? That's what the oversight committee is for. Instead, there are these random sort of inspectors general all over the executive branch, and this creates an unaccountable third, well, fourth branch of government that uh, that is not accountable to the president, really, because if he fires them, there's all sorts of hubbub and also not really accountable to the legislature because the legislature is not in a position to fire them either. Well, with all of that said, it's not a great look when President Trump fired Glenn Fine, the acting Pentagon watchdog. He had, he had been charged to lead a group to oversee the implementation of the coronavirus law. On Monday, Trump removed Fine from his post. Instead, he named the EPA inspector general to serve as the temporary Pentagon watchdog in addition to his other responsibilities. That decision effectively removed Fine from his role overseeing the coronavirus relief effort since the new law permits only current inspectors general to fill the position. Apparently, Fine will go back to his Senate-confirmed post as principal deputy inspector general of the Pentagon. There have been questions raised by Senator Lamar Alexander, for example, saying, like, I'm not sure why he did this, but that's not a great look. Also, this comes directly on the heels of Trump going after an HHS watchdog after they reported on hospital shortages. Right? President Trump the other day, like, directly went after this IG report. He tweeted out, why didn't the IG, who spent eight years with the Obama administration, did she report on the failed H1N1 swine flu debacle where 17,000 people died? Wants to talk to admirals, generals, VP, and others in charge before doing her report. Another fake dossier. Okay, the, the feeling of people are out to get me. Like, again, nobody cares about that stuff right now. Nobody cares about that stuff right now. What we care about is that the resources get where they're going. They have, by and large, been getting where they are going. And we want to make sure that we're not wasting all of our money. And we need a better reason than I don't like the guy for firing an inspector general inside the government, especially at this time. All righty. So that is, that is, those are things that I like as well as hate. We have run out of time, unfortunately. But we'll be back here, let's see, when? Uh, two hours later today. And then we'll be back here on Monday because it's Passover tonight. So that means, so everybody who is Jewish, enjoy your Seder, be at home with your family. If you want to see the uh, the plagues, just walk outside and take a look around. Uh, and, um, and then we'll be back here the following Monday. We do have a Sunday special episode that is going to be coming out uh, featuring for Easter Franklin Graham. So go check that out for sure. Otherwise, hang in there. We'll bring you all the data, all the updates. Come Monday, we'll all still be here. We can all pray that we will be. And uh, in the meantime, hunker down with your family and uh, enjoy a couple hours of this later today or just hang out with our other shows. Don't worry, we'll be hanging. All my friends will be hanging out with you the rest of the week. All my friends and Knowles, they'll be hanging out with you the rest of the week over at Daily Wire. Go check it out. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Moles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Colton Haas, directed by Mike Joyner, executive producer Jeremy Boring, supervising producer Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling, assistant director Pavel Wydowski, technical producer Austin Stevens, playback and media operated by Nick Sheehan, associate producer Katie Swinnerton, edited by Adam Saievitz, Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Nika Geneva. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. Hey everyone, it's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. Well, Bernie Sanders is out and Trump, and here's something you won't hear too many places, Trump is doing a good job in defending our freedoms to boot. What? <laughs> That's right. We'll talk about it on The Andrew Claven Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.